0: I want to invite you to uh, turn your Bible to Acts chapter one. And uh, Acts chapter one is verses, we're just going to kind of do a little intro this morning to the book of Acts. We're going we're to read six verses, so I want to read this. I want to give us a chance to just pause for a second and pray, and then we'll we'll jump in. So I hear these words from Acts one. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom, the kingdom to Israel at this time? This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment to ask God to speak to us as we do each week, a moment of silence, just to pause and to ask the Spirit of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in you, renewing your mind, your body, your heart, your soul, your life. So let's take a moment to just breathe in deeply and to breathe out and to ask God to speak and to work in us through his words of life this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just enlighten our minds, illuminate our hearts. Would you speak to us? We thank you, God, that you are a good father who desires to speak to your children, to to bring us into conformity with the image of Christ, to have the good image of God restored in us that we might live as your good people by your good spirit and bring about goodness in the world. Help us to see that this morning in the earliest of your disciples in your church. God, may we, like them, wait on you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If uh, you were not here the last several weeks, I want to encourage you to go back, uh, because that'll kind of provide a little bit of setup for uh, the book of Acts. We've been talking through this fall, our vision as a church, and talking about what it looks like to bring life into the world, the life of Jesus, the, the abundant life into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And last week, we kind of left off at the end of um, kind of Jesus's ministry here, which gets picked up in Acts, where he commissions his disciples, and he says, go out into the world and bring God's renewing presence everywhere you go. What has been deformed by sin, what God created to be good, was deformed by sin, is being reformed, in Christ has now been given to us to take out to the world. And Acts is really just the continuation of that. It's the story of how that goes forward into the world, and it's such a relevant text for us, right? It's a relevant text for us, not just uh, for nostalgia's sake. Like, oh, I I hear people say like, I wanna get back, we need to get back to the book of Acts. I don't know that you really wanna get back to the book of Acts. There's some crazy things that happen in there and I don't know that we wanna replicate everything that happens in the book of Acts now, right? Like, people get killed for lying, right? Like, right out of the gate in the book, right? Like, there are all kinds of crazy things. So it's not just about looking back, but it is so relevant to us as we think about living in this moment in which we're in. And so I wanna draw that out today and I wanna start by giving us a little bit of context for the book of Acts. All I wanna do is just set up the book of Acts and give us... An imagination for what's here and how I believe that um, the Spirit of God wants to continue doing this work today. Um, Now, Acts is, uh, as you see there, um, Luke, uh, the historian, the the physician who writes this book, um, mentions a a previous narrative. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. So that's who he's writing to. So Acts is the second volume of a two-volume work that's written by Luke, right? He's kind of embedded in the apostles as a traveling companion, right? Think of him as like a field journalist, right? Like, you know, embedded in the the missionary movement of the early church, close friend and companion to the apostle Paul. And he's writing to Theophilus, right? Whose name literally means in Greek, uh, lover of God or dearly beloved by God. Likely uh, a a recent convert or maybe somebody who is seeking Jesus and is likely um, Luke's patron, so he talks about and he refers to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus, and if you're old enough to remember, this is not some like Bill and Ted reference uh, to like the most excellent, um, you know, Theophilus. This is because he was likely a very wealthy man of means. If you don't know what that means, I just go, get on YouTube and just YouTube it. It's it's a great, um, great movie that many of you probably have never seen. Um, generational gap here. But um, Luke is writing uh, under the patronage, the benefactor of this man, Theophilus. And the first volume, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, Luke investigates and reports to Theophilus on everything he says that Jesus began to do and everything he began to teach from the time that he was born in a miraculous supernatural way all the way up until his ascension back to the Father. We'll talk more about that next week. Luke's intention was to undertake this massive journalistic project on the person and work of this real person, the historical Jesus, in order to give a sense of confidence, right? Like if you're new to Jesus, what you need is confidence, right? Like you have all of these forces around you telling you that it's just a myth, telling you it's just a fairy tale, telling you it's, it's like too good to be true, right like that's that's kind of the idea of Jesus like we're drawn to the idea but it just almost seems too good to be true and he's writing to Theophilus and he's saying what you've come to believe is actually historically true it is objectively true it is not only plausible but it has significant credibility and that's what he says i've offered up to you all of these convincing proofs that Jesus himself gave when he rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days speaking to them showing them touching them saying this Jesus is actually true you can believe in him you can have confidence that he is who he says he is so that's all the gospel of luke now we come to the book of acts and it's the continuation of everything that Jesus began to do in his life when he was physically present This is the continuation of that, but it's not something new, it's not something different. It's what began in the the physical presence of Jesus is now being continued. In other words, the spread of the kingdom of God, which is the the, the primary message that Jesus came to bring, the reign and the rule of God is here. The promised Messiah is here, right? That's what Acts is about, the continuation of the spread of that good news of the kingdom of God. And now it's going to happen, not through the physical presence of Jesus, but through the presence and the acts of the Holy Spirit. So this book is not the acts of the apostles primarily. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. The Holy Spirit, as we'll come to see in the book of Acts, remember we taught on this last year, um, is God's empowering presence, the reality of God and all of his fullness, his presence and his power made personal to us. That is who the Holy Spirit is. And what started with Jesus in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, will continue to radiate out through the cities and the cultures of the Roman Empire. And by the way, it it also continues to this day. Justa Gonzalez, uh, a Latino scholar says this, in the first book, when Jesus was physically present, the Holy Spirit acted through him. In the second book, after the ascension, Jesus would continue acting through the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice immediately a tension that arises in this book. Go on to verse four. While Jesus was with them, some of your translators might say, eating with them, lodging with them, staying with them, dining with them, showing hospitality to them. He commanded them, Not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. Now, do you see the tension? Matthew ends, Matthew 28, the Great Commission ends, Luke ends this way too, with the word, go, go and make disciples. And yet here we have Jesus, his very first command in the book of Acts. The the book is called Acts, the book is about action, and the very first action that Jesus says is, wait. Is that weird to you? Like, when, I was, when my kids were little, they loved to play, uh, like, red light, green light. It's like, you know, you turn, you're like, green light, go, red light, stop. Like, some of you, I, this is how I feel. I feel so bad for, like, real estate agents. This is what it's like to be a real estate agent. Like, go, stop. Buy the stop. Wait, no, I don't know. Like, you know, that's like how we do it. Like, maybe you're in a business where it's like always go, stop, go, stop. Jesus says, go, but stop, wait, linger. Wait is this really interesting word. Uh, It it can mean to wait with expectation. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent was a word kavah. And it shows up throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and, and throughout the Psalms, a ton in Genesis, it's uh, used of a, a dying man waiting for divine help. And it's used throughout the Psalms of waiting on God. Don't move before God moves. This word uh, can also mean twist. To wait is to be twisted up. It can mean stretch or endure. And is actually a close relative of an Arabic word that describes the silky material that spiders use to build a web. Waiting is is learning to be tough, to be resilient like the silk of a spider web, a material that according to engineers is stronger than steel and tougher than Kevlar. Notice this waiting takes place in the context of 40 days. Now, if you're new to the Bible, 40 days is not just a random, like he just happened to be there 40 instead of 41 or 42 or 45. 40 days is significant in the Bible 40 days is always a period of preparation. It's a period of transformation. It usually precedes a significant moment like a baptism or the Spirit of God falling on a person. So think back to the Old Testament. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain with God where he received the law, and then he left after the Spirit fell on him with his face shining with the glory of God. Elijah spent 40 days on a mountain with God after fleeing Jezebel. He's transformed. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before he was baptized and began his ministry. And now he says to his disciples, You two are going to wait and spend 40 days unlearning and relearning some things that are necessary for you to thrive. In the Roman Empire, just as Jesus, he says, was baptized by John, and the Spirit of God falls on him, and he's empowered with the Holy Spirit of God, so you too, he says, will be baptized in or with or by the Holy Spirit. This, this idea of being baptized with the Spirit, we've talked about this. I don't wanna get into all the theology here. I wanna encourage you, if you wanna get into that, go back to a message we preached in our series on the Holy Spirit about a year and a half ago. But here's, here's the essence of it. It is a deep work of transformation that has to happen that, that transforms the spiritual architecture of our whole person, our desires, our, our imagination, our bodies, our memories, our thoughts, our feelings, our habits. And and this was necessary for them. This deep inner work of transformation was necessary because they were living in this in-between space. They're living in between this old paradigm of diaspora Judaism, right? They're exiles in the Roman Empire under the threat of violence in in an empire that seeks the destruction of their bodies every day. They're living as minorities, in this community under a temple system with all of its rituals and its ways of life that provide a sense of safety and identity and security in a dangerous and hostile environment. And now Jesus has essentially ripped them out of that community and he's replanted them into the soil of the spirit age in the kingdom of God. But they're still caught in between. Like sometimes we forget when we read the Bible These are like real people, right? Like these are real people in real space and time and a real place on, like their feet are standing on real soil. They're inhabiting worlds that are just as real as ours, just as real as what we're experiencing here in Indianapolis. They're not like spirits floating above the concrete. Like they're in transition. Do you know what it's like to be in transition? You ever experienced like a transition like that? a significant transition where there's like, your life is so marked and so defined that it's before this thing happens and after this thing happens. Like, here's the thing about transitions. I've gone through a lot of these. Transitions are both beautiful and hard. In a transition, um, we have to let go of old things. There's a grieving process, there's a sadness, there's loss. We let go of old identities. We let go of old habits, old values, old practices old relationships sometimes, right? And then we're called into a new beginning, right? So there's a death and there's kind of a resurrection into a new way of life, a new way of seeing, a new way of being, new habits, new identities, new values, new practices. But here's the thing. Every, every transition involves the space in between. The life in between, this is what makes it so hard, the life in between the old and the new is the place of struggle, It is the place where we must be transformed. It's the place of confusion and disorientation because everything I knew over here, like this whole operating system, right? This is like going from PC, no offense, to Mac. Like this is old school, new school, right? New operating system. This stuff doesn't work on this new operating system anymore. And that sounds really exciting until it's not, until you actually have to live into it. Like, this is the struggle of Israel in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, right? They've left Egypt, and all the, all the cultural narratives and all the things they experienced, the brutality, the violence of Egypt, and so they move out of Egypt, but then they're in the wilderness for 40 years, another 40, right, 40 years. And here's the thing, what God is doing in the wilderness space is reminding them that though you are physically out of Egypt, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, Egypt is not out of you. See, we can move from one place to another and not have our inner landscape transformed in ways that are sufficient for us to be able to live in the new. And so this call to wait is a call to transformation. Wait on God. There's things in the waiting that God wants to teach you. So don't run ahead of God. The most dangerous thing you can do when you're in the in-between space and all of that tension and anxiety is rising up within you is to compulsively run ahead of God and try to make stuff happen out of fear or anxiety or worry. Because in the new, there's like a ton of uncertainty, right? I I don't know what this is going to be. But here's the thing. If we do that, what doesn't get transformed will be transmitted. What doesn't get transformed will be transmitted. If we're not changed by God, we will just simply project those anxieties, those fears, those unhealthy and toxic patterns and behaviors on other people. Like, I've seen this happen in my life. I don't know if you've had these moments of transition where you come out of one reality and you're transplanted into a new reality that changes everything about you and the way that you kind of interpret and experience the world is forever changed, right? Like this, there's like a before and an after, right? Like this is what it was like to be, um, get married. Like I thought I knew what it was like to be married and I knew it like up here, I th- but like, like I get married and all of a sudden I have a new identity, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm in covenant with a woman, that, that, that's terrifying. Not for me, for her. I've got all these new habits, I'm used to open gym, I'm used to doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, going anywhere that I wanted, and all of a sudden I find I've gotta check in, what? Like everything's different, and I, I thought that I knew, but I, I didn't know, all the premarital counseling, it's just like everything just drained out of my mind and memory, and all of a sudden I was like, ah, I don't know what to do. The stuff that they told me in marriage counseling is not working, like this is what it's like to have a baby, Right, like one day you're not a father. The next day you're a father. It's crazy. Like I remember leaving the hospital going, how am I responsible for another human being? Like you have to get certified to be a fitness instructor but not a parent. What is wrong with our world? I do not feel equipped to have a baby. Like forever I'm now a father, right? Like I'm a father. I'm actually a father of five children. One of my children died before uh, being born. I'm a father of five forever. It's forever changed me. New habits, new identity, new way of being in the world, new way of thinking. Like this happened when we moved um, to Indiana, right? Like we lived in South Florida. We are South Floridians. That is an identity statement, right? Like it's amazing to live in Florida. All of a sudden I moved to Indiana and I have to get an Indiana license. I'm a Southerner, I grew up in the South. What is a Hoosier exactly? Somebody, please, I have researched this, uh, this etymology. I, nobody even knows what a Hoosier is. All of a sudden, I'm a Hoosier, which is like the worst thing you could ever be if you grew up in Kentucky. I, I've got new practices and habits and behaviors that are expected of me, right? Like a, a rhythm for us every Sunday was to go to the beach after church and just enjoy the fact that we lived by the beach. What, what, what do I do in Indiana. The snow's really great. No, it's not. You've just been lied to. You just don't have any better options. It's cold. And in February, is has gotta be as close to hell as there is on earth in Indiana. <laughs> like you have no idea when you enter into these transitions how dramatically your life is gonna change. You think you know, but you don't. And you get on the other side of it and you realize how little you know. It's humbling, right? How little you know. And here's the thing, how little control you have. Like I thought it was gonna just like, my kids were like robots. I'm gonna shape them and I'm gonna manipulate them into this image and they're gonna be perfect little kids and grow up and do all these things. And then they don't. They're awesome, but they don't do it the way that I would want it to happen. The script that I wrote for them, they're like, no thanks, I've got a script for me too. And when we go through these transitions, we need to be mentored, right? Like I mean, we have a whole church full of like 20, mostly 20 and 30 year olds. How many times, I, I love this about our church. Like how many times somebody's like, can you give me a mentor? I, I, need, I just feel lost. I feel confused. I don't understand what's happening in the world right now. I don't understand what's happening in my life. I would love to have a mentor. And I laugh to myself because I'm like, I would love to have a mentor too. And I'm one of the oldest people here. We want mentors. I mean, if we had mentors like, and we started a class, it would fill up, it would sell out here at SOMA. We all long to be mentored in these times of transition. What if I told you that God has provided the best possible mentor that you could ever hope for? Right where you're at right now in the midst of transition. He's given you the Holy Spirit. It's actually the name that Jesus uses, the promise that he's going to give the Holy Spirit. The name he uses for the Holy Spirit is the counselor, the mentor, the advocate, one who will advocate for your best interest according to God's design for your life and with full knowledge of your past, present, and future. This is what the Holy Spirit does, and Jesus says this crazy thing in John 16, like I still can't. Wrap my reminder on this. He says, it's better for you. Like he starts talking about his death. His disciples start freaking out as you would if you were a disciple of Jesus and he told you he was gonna die and leave you. Jesus says to them in John 16, it's better for you that I leave you because if I don't leave you, the counselor can't come. The counselor, the spirit of truth will guide you. He'll lead you. He'll shepherd you. He will remind you about me. And then Jesus says, by the way, you will do greater works than me. Collectively, you, the church, will do greater works than I can do. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the spirit in you is better than Jesus beside you. That's crazy. But here's why we need the Holy Spirit. And this is just why, like why I think they're invited to wait and why we still are invited to wait right now on God to move and God to speak and God to lead. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us with a new imagination for life in the kingdom of God. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in us, to indwell in us, to be internalized in us, and then to energize a new imagination and a new way of life in the kingdom of God because it is not how we are conditioned to think and to feel and to remember and to see and to live. It's not. Only the Holy Spirit can bring us through these transitions. You see, all of us, and and this is what I say this, all of us have what psychologists call mental maps. You know what a mental map is, right? Like, when I was a kid, I grew up in a a neighborhood called uh, Cedar Creek in Louisville, and I I grew up, like, right on a stream, and the stream, it's kind of gross, actually, it flowed um, in and out of a sewage treatment facility, but I was trusting, it was filtered, I don't know, I spent a lot of time in there, I didn't grow a tail or anything, but uh, the stream... It, it, went, it cut through all of our neighborhood. And as a kid, without knowing any street names, just by spending time out in this stream, basically every day, I knew every nook and cranny, every turn, I could tell you when you get to this place and it forks, make a right, and then go left, I knew like when to get back based on where the sun was at. I knew which road to take so that I wouldn't, if I was running late, I wouldn't run into my parents as they were coming home from work, right? Like I knew I had a map of this reality was embedded. I didn't have to think about it. Like, it was even sometimes hard to explain. I knew it in my guts. Like, you ever gotten to work and just feel like, how did I get to work? I don't even remember driving here. That's kind of scary. Let's be honest. It's, that's a mental map. A mental map is an idea or an assumption or a belief that we have about reality, that works to inform our embodied practices in the world. It's, it's in our bodies. It's not something we have to think about. That's, it, it's shaped by our family, it's shaped by society, it's shaped by our experiences in the world. And, and these mental maps are largely automatic and unconscious and implicit. We don't think about them. We, we, we live them more than we believe them. So Jesus comes He lives, he dies, he's about to ascend back to the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, and the last thing he does, we see here at the beginning of Acts, is he spends these 40 days, notice, appearing to them and speaking about the kingdom of God, speaking to them about their mental maps, disrupting the mental maps that they had, and imparting to them new maps for reality. That is the kingdom of God right? And we know what he was doing because if you read the end of Luke, we know exactly how he did it. He's not inventing new truth. He's not saying, I want to give you this new thing called the kingdom, and it's, it's something crazy. It's like something from outer space, and i, and I just got to spend time. Like, it's like Lord of the Rings. You know, It's like its own language. No, he, he, he goes back to the beginning. in Luke, look at Luke 24. I've got the passage up here. He's talking to some disciples. He's explaining to them these realities. He says, how unwise, how slow you are. Your mental maps are so rigid and so narrow and so fixed. It's gonna take some time to undo these. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things? Didn't he have to enter into glory? Beginning with Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he interprets for them the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you read on down, he does the same thing again later with his other disciples. Everything written about me and Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms need to be reinterpreted in light of me. And it's not something new exactly, but it's like something old bursting forth in a new way that's totally natural and totally the fulfillment of the way that the universe was designed to work. He's unpacking a new mental map by reinterpreting their story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the exodus, the exile, all that they've lived, all that they've experienced. He points them back and he says, remember backwards, but look forward so that you can live faithfully in the present. Remember back all those things, all those promises that God made. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on you, you're going to experience These in a different way, it's gonna be an aha moment, like all of a sudden this new paradigm kicks in and all this kindling that had been laid through all the stories, all the experiences, all the hopes and desires and ambitions and longings. The Holy Spirit is gonna be the spark that starts the fire that allows them to internalize the reality of God's presence and his power and his truth. And the Holy Spirit's gonna apply it to this new work he's about to do in the empire. This is the continuation of what God has been doing from the beginning. What What he started doing in the Old Testament, he continued and brought to fulfillment and climax in Jesus. And now he's gonna continue to do that in the book of Acts. And he's gonna continue to do that throughout history right down to the present. Isn't that crazy? That's what's going on here. It's a new imagination, that fuels a new way of being in the world. I love this phrase. This isn't my phrase, but I love this phrase. It, it, it's like the Holy Spirit helps us remember forward. Remembering God's promises and his actions in the past and then looking forward, reinterpreting those and reimagining the possibilities, the horizon of possibilities of what could be in the future in God's new world, what will be in the future in God's new world, but lived out in the present. And you can see why they, why they need this, right? Like, look at the question that they ask in verse six. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? That's old paradigm thinking, right? That's an old way of thinking. Here's the thing. We operate as human beings on mental maps. But here's the danger. Our mental maps are often wrong. Our mental maps are often at least incomplete and partial. We have fragments, but not the whole. We we are captive to sin and bondage and shame and fear and guilt internally. And around us, we have all kinds of false ideologies and other mental maps that people are trying to foist on us to say, this is the good life. This is the way to human flourishing. And and so the problem is we try to piecemeal these different realities together and it ends up looking like Frankenstein. And our maps are often wrong. Their maps were wrong. What, what kinds of things are involved in a mental map? Let me just throw them up on, on the screen for you. Our, our identity. Like these are questions that we're all, all asking about the world. Who am I? What, what, what narrative is gonna ground my sense of self in the world and tell me that I'm okay? Who is God? What is God? ambitions and desires. We all, like kingdom is all about ambition. Kingdom is all about what is the good life? What, what do I really desire? Which we don't often think about as much again as we live through our bodies and our practices. I can say that I believe in Jesus, but if my life is not marked by the way of Jesus, then you can tell what your kingdom is really about which is why the three things you can look at most frequently to know what kingdom you're living in is money, sex, and power, how you handle those things. Community, they're asking questions about what it means to be Jewish. When all the the future of the kingdom of God is that we're gonna be a blessing to the nations, we're gonna become a multi-ethnic community. What does it mean for me as a Jewish person to expand my identity, not assimilate, not allow myself to be obliterated, but to expand my sense of identity as a community to include Gentiles who live life in many ways opposite as I do, but still claim Jesus is Lord. They're asking community questions. They're asking power questions. How does this happen? What kind of power is required to change? And and you can see wrapped up in this, all of those questions. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel now? Right, The old paradigm sees identity and ambition and community through the lens of nationalism, right? Are you gonna do it to Israel? At what point will we be able to rule our own land, become self-determined? This is Old Testament thinking. Become self-determining, wipe out the Romans and restore God's presence in the temple on this soil for Jews. Now, that's a natural question given their wounds right given what they've experienced under the oppression of Rome but God says that's not what I'm doing I want you to let go of that nationalist identity and I want you to create space for a new identity that is multi-ethnic multinational multicultural and get this this Good news is so radical, it's even gonna sweep up your oppressors in it and they're gonna become Christians and worship alongside you. That's crazy good news. And that's crazy threatening news for those who are trying to hold on to an identity rooted in blood and soil and ethnicity. There's power wrapped up in this. They see power through the lens of religious and political power. Violence, coercion, religious purity, ideological warfare. And he he says, no, that's not the way the kingdom works. We're going to see next week the kingdom comes in the power of the spirit. When you receive, not thrust upon other people violently, but when you receive the power of the spirit, you're going to see true power. You're going to see the power of spirit-infused languages and tongues, you're gonna see the power of visions and dreams to convert your oppressors. You're gonna see the power of signs and wonders break out. You're gonna see the poor uh, prosper. You're gonna see those who are struggling with generational trauma healed. You're gonna see those with deep body wounds and disabilities made whole. You're gonna experience a knowledge that goes beyond just information to true wisdom and understanding of the universe. You're gonna have the Holy Spirit as your director and your guide. But you're gonna to have to let go of control. The old way of thinking is I'm in control. The new way of thinking is I surrender to the control of the Spirit and I wait. And this stuff is hard, right? It's painful because it forces us to confront all kinds of unexamined assumptions about life all kinds of unexamined assumptions that we carry about what is flourishing and what's not, about the possibilities inherent in the world or not, about who Jesus is and who he's not, about what it means to be a part of a religious community and what it's not. Willie Jennings, one of my favorite commentaries, uh, African-American scholar at Yale, he says this, the deepest reality of life and the spirit depicted in the book of Acts is that the disciples of Jesus rarely, if ever, go where they want to go, or to whom they would want to go. Indeed, the Spirit seems to always be pressing the disciples to go to those to whom they would, in fact, strongly prefer, never to share space or a meal, and definitely not life together. Yet it's precisely this prodding to be boundary-crossing and border-transgressing that marks the presence of the Spirit of God. They need a new imagination. And that's what the Spirit's going to give them. That's the same thing the Spirit wants to give us, and I just wanna close with this. We, too, need to allow the Holy Spirit to transform our imagination. To transform our imagination, to internalize the presence and the power and the truth of God in us in such a way that our expectation, that's the word for wait, expectation and our hope for what God can do now because it's not just the continuation of the Holy Spirit in the Roman Empire, it's the continuation of the Holy Spirit up until the present and into the future. And, and every time the Spirit of God wants to do a work, which is now, by the way, we have to exchange and be constantly exchanging these old mental maps for new maps. Like the early disciples, we need a second wind of the Spirit breathed into us, illuminating our imaginations, exposing old paradigms, and awakening us to new ways of being in the world that lift us out of the predictable outcomes of just a human world. That is absent from the power and the presence of God, right? The predictable results of psychology and sociology. And again, I'm not against these disciplines, but I'm saying if we just look to history and we say what's happened in the past will continue to happen in the future, you will despair. We need to be lifted out of what history tells us is possible. What science tells us is possible, what sociology tells us is possible, what anthropology and biology and capitalism and democracy and technology and psychology tell us are possible and be be lifted, our imaginations stirred to see the world through the lens of God's kingdom and spirit living and working and guiding and leading and acting around us and among us and in us and through us. We need to expand our our horizons of possibility. Our identities need to be changed. Our relationships need to be transformed. We must wait on God to reorient our identities, to reorient our rhythms of life, to reorient our thinking around power and and money and sexuality and all these things, right? Like we need to be transformed so that our, our vision is not limited by nostalgia for the past, which is, can only be limited by the pain of history or the novelty of the future apart from the presence of God where all of our possibilities are basically limited by scientific technologies of progress. And into that, God says, no, I'm doing something different. I want you to remember what I've done in the past. And I want you to look to the future and what I'm going to do in the future, and I want to reinterpret and reimagine your life in light of the Spirit's work in bringing about the kingdom of God right now. And that involves, like, remembering these stories. That's why I want us to be in the book of Acts. I want the book of Acts to soak our imaginations. I I want us to imagine a world where people sell their possessions Voluntarily, not compelled, voluntarily sell their possessions so that there's no needy people among them. Can you imagine that world that the Holy Spirit already has? He's already brought that world into existence. Can you imagine a world where uh, you're, you're speaking foreign languages that you don't know, and people are being converted to Jesus as the gospel is preached in all kinds of languages and tongues in a non-imperialistic, coercive way? If you can't imagine that, the Spirit of God already has Can you imagine a world where he gives you a dream, where he gives you a vision, where he gives you a word to speak to somebody that is prophetic and you step up in obedience and you speak that word and lives are changed. Souls are altered because you are obedient to the word of God placed in you by the spirit. I mean, there's so much here on this landscape of acts that I don't have time to say. But I just want us to soak our imaginations in it to believe that it's possible, right? Like, that's what some of us need. We just need to believe that it's possible. God has done it before, and he will do it again. Not in the same way he did it in Acts, but he will give us something new here in this time. And we need to imagine the world of Acts as our world and what God began doing there, continuing now. Because Acts is not just history. If you read it as history, it stinks, It's weird, it's dead, it's a living history. That's how we need to read it. This is a living history. I just wanna close with this quote by Willie Jennings, and now we're out of time. The book of Acts beckons us to a life-giving historical consciousness that senses being in the midst of time that is both past and present and pulls us toward a future with God in the new creation. He wants his readers to see a past unfolding in a future and making intelligible a present. In this regard, history is now. So, as we come to communion, this is the confidence that God wants us to have as his children that comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The confidence that says Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, and that the same Spirit that lives in Jesus has been given to us to reshape the inner terrain of our lives, but also to reshape our world, to bring the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God into our lives. This is history-altering. It is soul-rendering. It is transformational if we will but surrender ourselves to the work of the Spirit, and that's what we celebrate each week in communion. That Jesus really died, that he really suffered, that he really rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is watching over and empowering our life now to give us new life, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from our shame, to make us new people with new identities, right? New identities, part of a new community, with a new power to bear witness, to the reality of Jesus in the world, to give us new mental maps and new imagination for what it means to be fully human. And so I wanna invite you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, we're gonna pass out our elements here. Let me pray for us. And then we're gonna distribute our elements and take communion together. And then we'll sing and send you back out. But let's just take a moment to pray and ask God to do this work in us. And as we come to communion, let's once again ask God for a second wind. Father, we pray in Jesus' name and the power of the Holy Spirit that you would allow us to linger, to wait for you, to not run ahead of you, to not attempt to do things in our own power and strength, but to wait, to wait, Holy Spirit, for you to transform our imaginations, to transform our identities, to transform our practices, our sense of community, our ambitions and desires. God, would you reorient us to your kingdom, to what it means for you to be Lord, Savior, Redeemer, King. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.